Let's turn to chapter 11 in Judges, please. That's where we're going to be tonight, chapter 11 in Judges. The account with Jephthah continues in our text for tonight. And if you remember from last time, uh, we were at a, or we've been building up to a tragic point in the history of Israel. Remember, things have been getting worse since the opening chapters of this book. Essentially, Israel has failed at the task that was set before them. Remember, God gave them the task in going into the promised land. They had work to do. There was a a purpose for them going in, in which they were supposed to drive out all of the inhabitants of Canaan. Israel was supposed to enter the land, and it was supposed to be theirs. This picture of the this picture of the promised land, the eternal kingdom, the heavenly country that Jesus would would usher in when he comes back uh, and with his second coming and to usher in the age to come, this time of eternal peace, this time of prosperity and no sorrow, resurrected bodies, no tragedy, all because of the work of true Israel, the God-man Jesus Christ. But we're not there yet. We're dealing with a text in which the shadow of that reality uh, was painting a picture of. And we certainly weren't there when this was happening and when this was being written. So we're at a dark point in Israel's history, a low point, an embarrassing point. But remember, the scriptures don't share everything as an endorsement of it. It often shares things that happened, not because this is what you're supposed to do, but because this is simply what happened in God's plan of redemption. And this is really what you should not do. And so this is more of that. And what happens here is difficult. And Israel really never recovers from here on out in Judges. The text we have for tonight is one that is highly debated between among pastors and Christians alike as to what actually happened. I don't think it's that hard to figure out, though. It's just it's just hard to accept. So, yeah, Henry? Judges chapter 11 is where we're going to be. So, we're going to let's read our passage, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll address what it says. So, the word of the Lord. In chapter 11 of Judges, beginning at verse 29. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from my doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, twenty cities, and as far as abel Keramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and my companions, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. 
And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you, and we are grateful that you are greater than all things in this world. We pray that you would give us understanding tonight, that Holy Spirit, you would make your word clear, you would help us to learn from it, and that you would cause us to be fully thrown upon um, the merits of Christ for our, our justification, for the satisfaction of the penalty of sins that was that is owed by us. Lord, please help us to take serious your word and help us to not disregard the instruction that you provide to us in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So verse 29 is where we began. And you notice that there's a transitionary, transitionary word then there. Yeah, Adam? Why on earth did he make that vow? We'll get there. The, we will get there. Sure the I mean, that's a fair question. Why did he do that? But we'll get there. That's that's what we should be thinking. You know, nothing wrong with that at all. Um, so verse 29 starts out with the word then. You guys, you guys with us, Josiah? All right, man. Um, after the things that have happened, in other words, then this is what happened. So after being in- introduced to Jephthah, the, where we went over last week, we learned of his history, how he was rejected. We saw how the Gileadites made a covenant with him to have him be their leader. They wanted him only when they needed him. Remember, they rejected him before that. But now that they need him, they want him because he's this mighty man of God who could lead them. Jephthah gave an, inc- an incredible account of Israel's history before the Ammonites. But the Ammonites reject his offer for peace. And that leaves us at verse 29. And here's what happens now. The spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. He clothed Jephthah just like we read the spirit doing with other judges in previous accounts through this book of Judges. That didn't happen with Abimelech, right? Abimelech didn't have the spirit come upon him. Abimelech raised himself up to be this leader. And it was turmoil and nothing but bad things happening in Israel for the most part during his time. He wasn't a true judge. But Jephthah is a true judge. The spirit has come upon him to accomplish a task. That doesn't mean he's going to judge perfectly. We've already seen judges like that, right? Barak didn't do perfectly. He doubted the Lord after having his spirit upon him to accomplish his work. We saw it with Gideon, who doubted um, or who lived like the surrounding nations after delivering Israel, after gaining victory uh, through the power that God gave him. That whole people, uh, Gideon ends up living like a, a king, unfortunately, and ruining the good that he could have done. Um, but having, but as, as we've been saying, there is this progression that we've seen in this book so far. It's, it's started out bad, and it's just getting worse. It's continuing to get worse and worse, and this account is especially a low point. Remember back in chapter 10, Israel's chased after all these false gods. All these God names seven different false gods that they have, you know, in essence, chased after that they've cheated on him with. And instead of worshiping him, he, they've worshiped all of these false gods. And he, God mentions seven of them rebuking them. It's like a, it's like a complete abandonment of God on Israel's part. And God's response has essentially been to abandon them, if not for his covenant promises. He tells them that they should cry out to these gods that they've been chasing. Um, and so they come under Yahweh's judgment for 20 years, 
And from verse 6 in chapter 10 to verse 29 in chapter 11, God is pretty much not in the picture that we read of. He's passive the whole time. He's not, uh, we don't see God doing this or doing that from chapter 6, or some verse 6, all to chapter 10, all the way to verse 29 and 11. But now, in verse 29, he acts. He clothes Gideon for the task at hand. And it doesn't say what is happening in verse 29 uh, specifically, but from previous accounts, we could figure it out. Most commentaries agree about what's happening here. Gideon is clothed with the Spirit, meaning he's been equipped by God to do the work that God wants him to do. And now he travels through Gilead to Manasseh and then to Mizpah of Gilead and on the way to where the Ammonites are encamped. Now, we don't read that he blew a trumpet and gathered troops to him, but we can assume that's what's happened. Right? That's the same thing that happened with Gideon. It's the same thing that's happened with other judges. When the Spirit comes upon them, they they blow the trumpet to call the, the surrounding people to their side so they can go out to battle against the enemies who have been oppressing him. Spirit's upon him. He's God's chosen judge. He's the one to deliver Israel through the grace that God will supply him. Remember how this has gone in previous episodes? There have been extraordinary odds against Israel. And in every single time, God has delivered them against these odds. Uh, Israel is delivered by the hand of God working through a judge, often in an unlikely manner. You know, a secret meeting that ends up with, you know, a blade stuffed all the way into a guy's stomach and then he's able to get away free without being harmed. Uh, death by a woman who's not a warrior, two times. And every time, uh, unsurmountable odds, remember 300 people against like 30,000 people. And so every single time, the deliverance has been about God's glory and God's ability really to save the people. Glory be to the Lord. That's a major theme in the gospel according to Judges. And so here's where it gets weird. Jephthah already has the spirit. He's anointed to do the work. In verse 30, he makes a vow to the Lord. Like Adam's question, why did he make this vow? If I had more time, like an hour or 50 minutes, I'd make the point that vows are not a bad thing. Obviously, there are marriage vows. Um, they're made before God, and, and those are a good thing. But even making a vow to the Lord himself is not bad. And I'm, I'm saying this because I've been around Christians before who have said that you should just never make vows at all. Never make oaths before the Lord. Now, perhaps this is just said in an abundance of caution. Kind of like if you, ever make a, if you never make a promise, then you'll never have to break a promise, right? Maybe it's said in that regard, but... We should make promises. There's nothing wrong with making promises. You should be a person of your word. And it's not bad to make vows as well, too, but you have to make right vows, biblical vows. So for the sake of time, let me just read you a couple paragraphs from chapter 23 in the 1689 London Baptist Confession. If you're interested, you can go back later and read that chapter about uh, lawful oaths and religious vows. And so in part, um, this, is what it, this is what it says about vow, vows and oaths are the same thing. So... Article 1 says a lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth or falsity of it. So quick sidetrack. So Jesus, when he says, like, let your yes be yes and your no be no, don't swear upon heaven or earth. If you, if you let your yes be yes, you're still vowing to say yes. You're just not putting it, you're just not putting your, like, something else on the line for it. Okay, so a vow is, is fine to make. 
if it's a good vow, a lawful one. And then number two says people should should swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. Therefore, therefore, to swear an empty or ill-advised oath by that glorious and awe-inspiring name or to swear at all by anything else is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm truth and end all conflict. So lawful oaths should be taken when it is required by legitimate authority in such circumstances. And then if you want, like I said, you can read chapter 23 of the London Baptist Confession in your own time, and there's support verses that you could look at, and if you want to, we could talk about those later. But another example might be like when the President of the United States is sworn into office, he takes an oath and he puts his hand usually on top of a Bible. And he, you know, if you're doing that, you're swearing a lawful oath before the Lord to uphold this office in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And so you have like, you know, previous presidents um, who haven't been wanting to uphold what God's word says. I mean, that's a, a dangerous thing to do. So the question for us at this point is, is Jephthah's oath lawful? Is his vow lawful? And the answer is obviously no. It's not even close. Look at what he says. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, verse 31, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. First off, why even make a vow here? That's Adam's question. That's what I thought too when I read this. Why even make a vow here? The Spirit's already upon him to do the work. Not once in the history of judges do we see a judge giving God, and if this happens... A scenario where it says, if this happens, then I will do this scenario, like an ultimatum. If this happens, then I will do this. Not once do we see that before. It's not needed. It's different because Gideon was wanting to prove his faith. Uh, was wanting to prove, because Gideon has absorbed in Baal worship, remember? And so Gideon wanted to have his faith built up. This is not Jephthah's faith, faith built up. This is Jephthah being given the prize. You know, it, it wasn't Gideon wasn't saying, give me a victory over these people. Gideon was wanting, we, cause we considered that. We were saying, like, why did Gideon do it this twice? Because Gideon was familiarized, and why did God not care, you know? Because Gideon, it seemed like, was wanting to have his faith built up. And we need our faith built up, especially Gideon, you know? He he was, remember, he was from the, the lowest of all of the, the tribes and in his father's house. And so for Gideon to do that, it was different in the sense that he was having his knowledge of God built up and his faith built up. So there's, yeah, so we don't have time to look at all of this. So Hannah makes a vow, similar type of, similar type of thing, but still different because he's saying he's going to make this offering to the Lord rather than, than Hannah who was going to give her son. So yeah, there's, there's, Hannah's vow is another one to look at, but we don't have time to go and to compare all the vows. This is obviously different because the Lord is already intending to give him the victory, right? Hannah, from Hannah's perspective, she was on the outside still. The Spirit is already upon Gideon, or not Gideon, um, Jephthah, to make this event happen. He's almost like he didn't believe. Well, he's could be that he didn't believe. Uh, the Lord is, he's already got the army even, right? This is after he's got the army. He's making this vow in front of a group of people. He's making a spectacle a spectacle out of himself, really. He would be much better. We would all 
be much better to simply live quiet lives of faith rather than trying to make this, you know, big production in front of all these other people and then this, this promise before God. Barry Webb in his commentary notes that it really it comes off as a bribe. That's what this this vow comes off as, a, a bribe. He's bribing the Lord for victory. He says, if you give me the victory and I live through it, then I'll give you whatever comes out of my house to greet me. Because this one, he's literally telling him that he'll sacrifice a person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like a sheep's going to walk out of the house and say, You guys are taking my sermon from me already. Why don't we just, why don't I just take my earpod out and give it to Adam and Clint and Valerie and just make all my points for me before we even get there? No, but that's exactly, that's all exactly right. Um, Does the Lord need anything? No. He doesn't. He is what we would call assay from the from the doctrine from the doctrine of saity, meaning that God exists within Himself. Everything in existence is from Him, through Him, and to Him. The Lord doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone to counsel Him. Romans eleven thirty four. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the animals of the fields are His. Psalm fifty. He doesn't delight in sacrifice. Even Psalm fifty one. God doesn't need anything from us. We're the ones who are privileged to worship him. And so that's the difference here between even Hannah and Jephthah. Hannah's wanting to give this to the Lord. Jephthah's saying, I'm going to give this to you for if you give this to me. Right. So Colossians tells us that Christ is upholding the world by the word of his power. We need him. We aren't all say. Only God is say, meaning without need. He is self-existent. So Christ is upon the world with his power. We are included in that. We always need the Lord. Maybe by grace never forget that. It's a gospel hope that Christ is always faithful to us regardless of what is happening in our lives. So we always need the Lord. Now perhaps Jephthah gets that. And so maybe he makes this vow. But again, the Spirit is already upon him. Maybe he can't tell the Spirit is on him. I don't know, but it's not even a good vow. It's not a lawful oath because of what Adam was pointing out, what he said he was going to do with this thing that came out of the door. Look at the parameters of it. And this is surprising because as we went over last week, Jephthah should know that this was not a good thing to do. He had a good grasp of Israel's history. You would think he knows the law of God, but now he vows, he makes a vow that is contrary to the law of God. So look at the parameters of it. He says, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be the Lord's. I shall give it as a burnt offering. Now, some commentators, typically modern ones, and also typically the more liberal kind. So, for example, you can find this argument put forth on like the Gospel Coalition's website. But some commentators will say that Jephthah has in mind an animal here, that he's thinking of an animal coming out to meet him. Now, it's true that in some Israelite homes, you could have lambs that would like come inside at night to sleep especially on cold nights, uh, maybe if you didn't have a whole lot. And their houses were designed in such a way where there would be like a, an area in the front room where animals could come in, it was blocked off, and it would be like a, a weather type of a thing for safety. And an Israelite would be familiar with animals and with making sacrifices to God with an animal, of course. And so these commentators are wanting to explain away what happens later in our text. But this does damage to the revelation of God's word. Remember, Scripture doesn't always endorse everything in its pages. It tells the wicked things as an example, and this is rightly understood in that sort of light. 
So the phrasing used by Jephthah here, whatever comes out, is not the sort of language you would use of an animal typically in the Hebrew language. The idea here is that Jephthah was expecting a person to come out. And that's further supported by the fact that he says, whatever comes out the door of this house to meet him. It's a pretty big stretch here to think that an animal that would be normally designated for sacrifice would be so friendly that it would come out to, to meet him like it missed him, like a sheep. Is such is such his good friend, and it missed him when he's been gone at war. And this is typically a sheep they family would use for sacrifices anyway. So it's a pretty big stretch. Jephthah is thinking of a person coming out, maybe a servant, maybe his mother-in-law. I I don't I don't know, but it's not an animal. And the people back at the house don't know he's made this vow. He's making it at the threshold of war, and Jephthah should know based off of his account of Israel's history, I would think he does know that God does not approve of human offerings, of a human offering to him as a sacrifice. Uh, you know, in Romans 12, we're told to be living sacrifices. Deuteronomy 12.31 and 18.10, though, make it explicit that God does not approve of taking a human life and offering it to him as a sacrifice, like the surrounding nations did. Now, why would he make such a vow? It's about this vow, this oath contradicts what I shared from the London Baptist Confession a few moments ago. It's not lawful. It contradicts scripture. It contradicts the law of God. Well, if you remember, we've been observing the canonization of Israel. We've been seeing how Israel was becoming like the nations that they were supposed to expel rather than influencing the nations to repent of their sins and, and enter into a covenant with Yahweh. They didn't kick the nations out. Instead, they adopted their customs. And remember from last week, Jephthah, he was expelled from his family and tribe. And what kind of people did he surround himself with? What did it call them? Worthless, worthless fellows. Yeah, I heard you about to say it as well, too. They were worthless fellows. Powerful. It's indicting on, their, on them. They were the type of people who didn't care to please God, who didn't care to please Yahweh. Most likely even the type of people who would bribe their God to get what they want with a child or human sacrifice. If we re read through the books of Chronicles and Kings, you would see that the people and the surrounding nations of Canaan did that sort of thing. They would offer their children up uh, to Molech. And so Jephthah makes his vow. He never should have done it. More on that later. Or, or a couple things we could make as a way of application. Maybe we'll just deal with one for tonight. Um, number one, though, who we associate with matters. I'm not saying that we should never befriend sinners. For one, you know, that would be impossible. You yourself are a sinner, right? Even if you surround yourself nothing by Christians, with nothing but Christians, you would be surrounding yourself with sinners. But you need to know your limits. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 lists off a number of sins that happened in Israel and what we would read in the Old Testament. And he says that they all took place. He mentions things like the serpent in the wilderness, um, the rebellion of Korah, he mentions it like five or six different things. And he says that they were all recorded or they all took place as an example for us and for instruction, verse 6 and verse 11. And then he says, we should take heed lest we fall. So in that same vein of thought, Jephthah is instructive for us here too. Look what happened when he was surrounded by worthless men. He does something unthinkable, even though he knows the truth and that he should know at least that this isn't going to please God. And the same can be said for you and I. You know, if David can fall, 
And we talked about this in Sunday school recently. He was a man after God's own heart. If he could be led away in temptation, then what makes you think we couldn't? We, we could fall into sin as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, Psalm 1-1 says. The very first line of the book of worship for us, the, the, the book of the Psalms, the very first line in there says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And there are all sorts of examples where we see this played out in events and even many times of clear instruction in Scripture. Here's just a couple. Listen to the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So what I'm, what I'm wanting you to understand is that the people we surround ourselves with matters. They'll contribute to your sanctification or not. None of us are Jesus and are, and are able to withstand temptation. Uh, plus, Jesus never hung out with sinners just because it was like fun to hang out with sinners. He hung out with people who were labeled sinners because his goal was to you know, testify to them about himself, and to let them know the good news that was in him so they might turn from their sins and turn from sin and look to glorify God with their lives. He was a man about his father's business. So the friends you have, uh, the music you listen to, the social media you engage with, the entertainment you partake of. I'm not saying like that I have these hard rules of that saying you can't do this or you can't do that. I'm simply asking you to hold up everything to the light of God's word. Hold, up, hold it all up to the light of God's word and ask yourself, is this decision of you know, watching this, engaging with that, hanging around these people, is that decision good for you or not based off of what God's word says? I'm not trying to be the judge of what you do and what you don't do. I, God's word should be the judge of that. So don't be deceived. That's the Apostle Paul before it's me. You know, before that's the Apostle Paul before it's the past Pastor Paul. Uh, don't be deceived. Take heed lest you fall. Bad company ruins good morals. So I don't want you to suffer harm. So who we associate with matters. All right. One, Another thing, if we have more time, we consider how our words land us in trouble because that's where Jephthah is at now. Hopefully we had time in your small groups to talk about that a little bit. But it's appropriate to pray with the psalmist. Um, you know, put a watch on my mouth, put a guard on my lips so they may not sin against you. There's no guard on Jephthah's mouth here. He makes a tragic vow. And it's tragic for two reasons. It's tragic because it was made in the first place. And then also, it's tragic because he goes through with it. Verse 32 and 33 explain that God delivers the people. The Lord gave them into his hand again. The Lord is going to do, was going to do this. The Lord gave the people into Jephthah's hand. The Ammonites are subdued. Jephthah returns back to his house in verse 34. Who comes out to meet him but his daughter? She's dancing. She has tambourines. Obviously, she's happy to see her dad come home from battle. She doesn't know, you know. I mean, we can't presume God's mercy. She doesn't know if her dad was going to survive this or not. But he did. He comes home. The scene is very much like how Miriam, the sister of Moses, acted after God delivered them from Egypt. She's dancing with a tambourine as well after the, the song of Moses. 
So the text is very discreet here with details, which I'm grateful for. It notes some of the surrounding details, but doesn't give any of the gory ones. And that could perhaps be in part um, some of the reason why people think Jephthah didn't go through with the vow. But as we'll mention here in a moment, but we'll see that's not actually possible to think that and at the same time to do justice to the text. But we do read some things that are telling in the account. So number one, it's his only daughter. His only child besides her, he has neither son nor daughter. And so we're made to see the weight of this foolish and tragic vow he makes. Though Jephthah delivers Israel, this is going to be the end of his family line. There are interesting um, parallels here, but that's not what he says, right? Because he says, I can't turn back from my vow. And the difference between the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac is that God told Abraham to do that. God did not tell Jephthah to make this vow. God was going to have to have it done. There's a, there's a, if we had more time, there's a few interesting parallels between Abraham and Isaac and Jephthah in this. We'll, this, we'll use our time to look at Jesus. Maybe. Uh, and he failed, yeah. yeah. Failed big time. So this is going to end his family line. He has no inheritance in Israel before this, and now he's going to have no one to share in his newfound position with after. This is a tragic vow. And so he sees her in verse 35, and he tears his clothes. That's different than Abraham, right? It's a sign of regret. It's a sign of grief and lament because his daughter is the one who came out. It seems clear, at least, that his intent wasn't for it to be his daughter, right? That part at least seems clear. He says, alas, my daughter. So who knows who he was thinking was going to come out, maybe a servant or something. (laughs) He must have a wife. Yeah. Daughter. Yeah. We don't know. We're spared some some of these details. (laughs) Be free from that woman. (laughs) That That would be just as bad. That would be just as bad. He's not a... He's not a model by any means, Jephthah, in all this. So who knows who's actually hoping to come out? It doesn't seem at least like he was wanting his daughter to come out. He's lamenting, but if you look close, more closely at it, it seems like he's actually lamenting his own misfortune and not the death of his daughter. It's, you have brought me very low. You are the cause of this great trouble to me. You see how perverted Jephthah's thinking is? He brought himself low with this vow. It wasn't his daughter coming out that brought him low. He's actually the cause of his trouble. It's not her fault that he's putting the blame on her. He didn't have to make this vow. And then he acknowledges, see in verse 35, he says he can't take back the vow. Now, there are a number of texts that would agree with Jephthah here, though that once we vow to the Lord, we should keep that vow. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 to 6, Deuteronomy 23, 21, Numbers 30, Matthew 5, 37, James 5, 12. But again, This is not a lawful oath. It's not a good vow. And God does make provision, or he did make provision, for sinners who saw their sinful vow and wanted to repent from it. This is Leviticus 5, verse 12. It says, If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and is hidden from him, verse 4, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, verse 5, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, And then in verse 6, all the way through um, verse 13, we read instruction about different options that a person could do to make atonement for that bad vow. Did you find that? Leviticus. um, 5, 4 through 6. Yeah, Leviticus 5, 
4 going through 6. And then in verse 13 we read this, The priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin which he has committed, and any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest as if for a grain offering. So there is this provision with vows that are, should never have been made that God gave to the Old Covenant community uh, to have forgiveness. Gideon could have said no. Certainly Gideon saw his mistake. Did he see it as sin? I don't know. He regretted it, but was it true repentance? We've talked about that over this series, have we? Anyway, Jephthah should have at this point realized his foolishness. He could have repented. Things could have been different, but he goes through with it. If we ever make a foolish vow, if you ever make a foolish vow, don't go through with it. <laughs> you repent and you seek Christ. Or if we see someone else sin like that, you know, we can interpose and tell them to go to Christ for forgiveness. Don't encourage someone to make a stupid vow, to continue on with a stupid vow, because it's stupid. It's a tragedy. That is what happens here. His daughter's response is interesting, though. She doesn't do any of that either. She is reminiscent of Isaac with Abraham. Isaac went willing as a sacrifice. She's going to go willing. She's going to fight against her dad. She could have interposed, claiming the law of Israel as a source of her right. Her dad was wanting to commit sin. He was wanting to commit an abomination. She didn't have to go through with it. She might have not. She might know. She might not know the Levitical law. Yeah, and he knew the history of Israel, but doesn't mean she does, you know. So, yet she's like Isaac, who carried the bundle of wood up the mountain. Except she has a request. And here's where modern commentaries try to strip the text of the tragedy once again. Some people are going to want to say at this point she offers herself to temple service, that Jephthah didn't actually sacrifice her, but that makes. Um, but that doesn't make any sense according to her request and the response of the people. She wants to go to the mountains with her friends and weep for her virginity. She's never known a man. She doesn't have any children. The family line will be coming to an end. Matthew Henry points out that if she was to be offered to the temple as a servant in the temple at this point, there is no reason to go to the mountains to bewail her virginity. For one, there is nothing in Israel law that says a woman who works in the temple can't be married and have children. Why add that addition to it? There's no, there's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, like even today, Roman Catholics, their priests don't get married. There's nuns who don't get married. Nothing in the Bible, except for a misappropriation of 1 Corinthians 7, would cause you to, to get to that point. But nothing in the Old Covenant at all, in the Old Testament, even alludes to that. She wants to go to the mountains to bewail her virginity because... This is more than what some of these liberal commentators want to say is going to happen. If she was just going to be an unmarried virgin in the temple, uh, for one, there's no reason for her to think that is to happen. For two, what's the point of going to the mountains for two months to lament it? You could lament it your whole life if that was your heart about it, <laughs> you know, because you're going to live the whole time as a temple servant. And what reason would there be for people to go out every year in honor of this unnamed girl if she went to the temple? If there were if there were virgin temple workers already, what's the point of making this a yearly pilgrimage to the wilderness in honor of her? There'd be no reason for it. And further, we read in verse 39, that her father did as he said he would. And we know what he said he would do. He didn't say anywhere that she would be a temple worker, but that the one who came out of his house would be a burnt offering. He burned her as a sacrifice to the Lord. And do you think Yahweh approved of that? No, right? I... Deuteronomy 18.30, the other verse as well. It's interesting, actually. 
there's a sliding scale of Jephthah's works that we read of. He was successful and shrewd with the Gileadites, but then he met with the Ammonites and they rejected him. They said no to his offer of peace. And then he gives this vow to God and God just ignores him, right? God didn't respond to the vow at all. Henry? What would have been the right decision? He made the vow. I'm not really supposed to break the vow. Well, you can break, like, sinful vows. Yeah. Think about it. Like, so if you make a sinful vow, that's a sin. So you're already wrong for doing that. Then if you go through with that sinful vow, then you're sinning again, right? So better to, even if you know that you're not supposed to break your vows, it's better to not add to your sin by going through with that, that bad vow, that unlawful oath, because God does allow for forgiveness and repentance. It's not, it would be, it would be un, an undoing of the sin by going back on the vow, not sinning further because it was a bad vow. Now, if you make a good vow and you don't go through with that vow, then that's sin, right? Because you've made this good, this bright, this holy vow, and then you fail to do it, that would be sin. That's why the scripture says maybe don't make any vows if that's what you're going to do. But there are times when you should make vows. And if you break a good vow, that would be sinful. And you still at that point ask for repentance of that as well too. But if you make a bad vow, like I, I vow, like some, let's say, I mean, people do this kind of thing all the time actually. Someone kills someone in your family, I'm going to vow to take revenge. I'm going to get, like, that happens in our world. Well, by the grace of God, if you realize that that's sinful for you to take vengeance like that, repent of that. Don't say, oh, shoot, I know it's a sin. I better go through and do with it. I better kill this man anyways. That's not what you do, right? You repent of that vow that you made that was wrong because you don't add sin upon sin. Your vengeance could just be landing that guy in jail. Yeah, let the Lord uh, do vengeance. So, God never responded to Jephthah's tragic vow, and we hear no interaction from God since first coming upon Jephthah in verse 29. Jephthah did the unthinkable. It's going to continue to be bad in the next chapter. We're not made to put our hope in Jephthah, friends. We're not made to put our hope in another man to deliver us. The scriptures share the low points and the ugly truths of man's depravity that we may learn of Christ. And so there are many parallels for us to consider with Jephthah and Jesus, just a few. Though Jephthah is a judge who makes horrible and tragic vows and a decision to follow through with it, there are still ways in which the text points us to Christ and the work he does. And that's the point of all of scripture and the privilege we have in reading God's book with the mind of Christ being given to us is to notice these things. So a few things, positive things that we might learn and be instructed in, even though this is a dark point in Israel. We'll close with this. Uh, Jephthah was a mighty warrior we read at the beginning of chapter 11. But he's nothing compared to Christ, who is the mighty warrior. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a warrior who is greater than the Lord. The deliverance that Christ supplies is greater than the deliverance that Jephthah even could have provided. Jephthah was known to be around worthless fellows. Christ was known and he's remembered for being a friend of sinners. Jephthah, though, he was influenced by his companions. But Christ is greater. He makes sinners to be his friends. He can't be changed by sinners, but he changes sinners. His work on the cross, his holy life, his atoning work, in other words, changes us. Christians are at one time worthless fellows. If Every one of us in this room, even if we're Christian today, we were rightly considered from God to be like a worthless fellow before Christ changed us. We were haters of God and enemies of God, but Christ around us changes us. Jephthah was the reverse. 
he became more like these worthless people. Christ is greater. Jephthah fought for the land, and God did bring about victory for him. This wasn't because of Jephthah's faithfulness, obviously, of course not. It was God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. But Jesus obtains a heavenly country. He's the true Israel, and everyone in him is part of true Israel. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. We get that because of Christ. Christ fought for the land. He secured victory, just like Jephthah did. But Christ did it on a greater scale. He reigns and all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And this is an interesting contrary point to be made at well. Jephthah made a plan not knowing the outcome and it ended up with his daughter's death. But the father, the son, and the spirit, they all made a plan, predestining all the events of time so that it would happen without the fail, without fail for the son to die. Jephthah's daughter died and his inheritance was cut off. But in Christ's death, everyone who believes in Christ becomes God's inheritance, Ephesians 1.18. In Christ's death, it wasn't the end of the line. It was the securing of a people to enjoy the blessings of God all because of the grace of God. And that's the last thing to draw out, though we could see more even. Jephthah, his story ends sad. There's one more account, but it's not good. He's mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, of course, but his daughter dies. She's sacrificed and that's it. But with Christ, it ends at the highest point. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. There's no sadness about it. We even call the day he was murdered on Good Friday because of what he accomplished. Christ was able to discharge the penalty of our sin, of even the sin of Jephthah, of the sin that all of those chosen in him have made. And there's no greater deliverer. There's no there's redemption in no other. That's the gospel and judges for us to see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that wicked things happen in history. We know that even we are capable of doing great wickedness. And we pray that you would, in your sovereign mercy and kind providence, lead us away from doing great sins. We don't think that we're any better than Jephthah, Lord. We know that we need salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, just like he did. But please, Lord, prevent us from being influenced by this world and false ideologies and evil plans. And help us instead to be guided by your word. Help us to hold up our our lives against the light of your word. Lord, we are know that we know that we're told to make our calling and election sure that we are supposed to examine ourselves. And we need grace even to do that. So please, Lord, help us, uh, sanctify us in Christ. We thank you so much for the great deliverance that you have given to us in him. And our hope is in that and that alone. In his name we pray. Amen.